Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark, and we're here for another episode of Wusha Workshop, and uh, we're going to move right into the first segment of the podcast, which is problems in design, and this is where we just talk about problems that we have at our table in designing the games that we work on, and uh, and just, you know, general topics that GMs probably contend with. Uh, and so we're going to start out with timing and pacing, and... Uh, I know this is something that's sort of more in your wheelhouse and you deal with it in Tian Shang. And so, and I was, I was, I really liked the way that you, you handled it in, in Tian Shang. And, and so I wanted to, to talk about that, but also talk about the problem more broadly. So, uh, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts on the topic? Okay. Um, yeah. Hi, Joel Clark here. Just to make sure everyone knows who I am again. Cause I'm kind of nobody as you recall. Uh, yeah, okay, so time and pacing is is one of those things that's not so much a rule that you see in rule books a lot, but whenever you actually run games, it's a, it's a really critical issue. Uh, and, like, that kind of bleeds into, like, process-based gaming and stuff like that, which is a, kind of a broadening of the topic. I, I want to sort of just focus on, like, when you're at the table and you're asked the question as a GM, okay, what happens next? You find that that is the question you're asked most frequently, and it's hard to consistently have an answer to, okay, well, what is happening next? What should we be doing now? And, like, the real time of the game passing, like, you'll, you'll find yourself hitting lags and snags where, like, you're not sure if you're waiting on the players or if they're waiting on you. Yep. And it's best to kind of... It, whenever you recognize that as, like, an actual problem of, like, these big lulls in game time, uh, that's whenever you, you start thinking about, well, how do I, how do I fix that? And that's where you kind of get into uh, time and pacing. Another, another, there's a, it manifests in other ways too. Like it's possible to make a game or, or play a game such as that you're kind of Monty hauling it, which is where you over reward the players. And so the sort of more satisfying arc of character development and growth concludes too quickly, and you're left with players who are invested in their characters, but they've kind of burned through all your material, and now you're sort of foundering about what to do next. So it it not it manifests both in like the small case and the like session by session stuff, and then the broader case of like how do I run and structure a campaign that goes for the amount of time I want it to bring it to a satisfying end, all that stuff. And like I said, games like don't spend a lot of time talking about it. I've got I must have a thousand dollars worth of D and D core books on my shelves right now. And like maybe eight pages in all of them are dedicated to talking about how do I actually pace the game. Yeah. Well, I think it's something that's for, I think a lot of people it's intuitive. And so a lot of people, it's not a problem that, that they have. So they don't, they don't necessarily need to deal with it or have a suggestion for it. Um, but if it's something that becomes a problem, then you set that's when you tend to notice it. So, yeah. and, and there are obviously, you know, like, um, you know, you know, classic D and D has some good methods uh, for dealing with it in terms of how it handles things like turns and stuff like that. That's oh pretty, yeah, yeah. Guy pretty... Gygax, he actually wrote about it in the old D and D stuff. Like I've got my original, uh, well, I don't know if it's original, but I've got like the AD and D player's handbook, and in there, or it might have been in the D and D. Come to think of it, he actually has a place where he's like, look, here's how you manage time in games. You know, here's how you block out days and weeks and months and rounds and it's fantastic how detailed it is yeah actually fun little story about that and a very little story i don't want to interrupt you too much here when i when i was designing parliament of crocodiles and i was doing the same thing and having the same problems with time and pacing i naturally recreated the almost word for word exact chart that he made in there for structuring mm -hmm. games based on time so clearly there's some intuition involved there 
Well, and I think, um, like, so I have three different groups, and mm -hmm. each group, I've noticed, has its own sort of internal clock in terms of how things, how, you know. And so with, with, uh, with, you know, certain players, I'm much more in sync. Like, there's no real need to sort of negotiate the passage of time because I know when the next beat of things is coming. I know that, okay, they want to, now they're going to the, the, the city and I need to elapse time for the, the, the period of the journey on a, you know, on like a daily basis or something. Um, whereas with some other groups, I might, it might not be that clear. I might have to sort of, uh, I, I might have to work with much more defined increments of time just so that everybody sort of knows, you know, what's going on and, and, and when, when things are going to advance without me sort of pressuring them. And, and so that's the sort of thing where I am always sort of, you know, uh, you know, fascinated by it. And also, you know, as it, you know, time is one of these things that shifts. And again, this is what, what I like so much about the Tian Shang stuff is time really shifts depending on what's going on. And so if I'm, if I'm involved in combat, I'm dealing with very fine increments of time usually, though not always. It depends on the game. And, and again, Tian Shang kind of has an interesting way of dealing with that. Um, but if I'm doing something like overland movement, I'm probably dealing with much broader increments of time. And if I'm doing oh, yeah. like dungeon exploration, I'm dealing with, you know, again, I, I do tend to sort of default to the 10 minute turn for, for local yeah. exploration. And I, I was stunned at how well that wound up structuring my games without me needing to. Um, when I started doing dungeon crawls, the old school style, cause I was used to just like the way I initially approached it was just tell me what you do. Tell me what you do. And like, so it, it was very kind of just free form. And then I, 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 that led to a lot of the pacing problems I'm talking about where there were big lags and people were like, well, do I have enough time to do this while this is happening? Yeah. But as soon as I was like, okay, you get a 10 minute turn and we're going to go around kind of like initiative style. What are you doing mm -hmm. during this 10 minutes? What are you doing? And immediately my games became more, more like focused. Mm -hmm. People had a lot more, they had a better idea of how they could do things, how the time frame they had to do them. They, they had processes for, I'm going to check this door. I'm going to look for traps here. I'm going to do this thing that takes 10 minutes. It was amazing. Like how well that structured games immediately. It gave them a sense of immediacy. Yeah. It wasn't meandering anymore. Mm -hmm. Little things like that, like really fixed it. Um, so yeah, I, I got I to gotta hand it to the 10 minute turn. That works really well because you get to point to the next player and say, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's amazing. I love that. And actually that, that exact point to a player, what are you doing? Is is really like that that and the White Wolf scene concept, and that might predate White Wolf or what I use to structure Tian Shang, which as soon as you're ready, I will bloviate about mm -hmm. because I got uh, I got a lot of thought went into it. It actually wound up being really simple, is because like you read it and like that was one of the things you immediately commented on yeah. was you're like wow this is really cool, and I'll tell you why you had that reaction is because it's short and intuitive and it will clearly work at a table. Yeah, I could tell. I could tell. I've, I've run enough games. I mean, I definitely wanted to see it in action too, because one of my other thoughts was, gee, how does I want to see how 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 he's using this? So um, it was it's it's something where I was very intrigued by it. Um, like like but like you had the um, you know the, one of the things that that that, that I you, you know that I really liked about it you know obviously was like the the montage idea and. And I was curious what, uh, you know, how that came about. Like, what was the, you know, 
I, I've, I've seen people try to do montage stuff in the past, and it's never really worked, but the way you do it, it seems different. Um, and, and Yeah, the, there's an easy solution to that, too. Like, and that, that hit me like a bolt of lightning when I realized it, because I, you're right, you've seen a lot of games, I've seen a lot of games, where they're like, oh, here is how you do large increments of time. Yeah. The problem is they assume that you as the GM or they as the game designer have some control over how long these things are going to take, and yeah. we don't. People who have control over it are the players. They will tell you when they're ready to do that, and they'll do it as a group, especially if you give them a reason to. Like, okay, it takes you this many months to accomplish this. Okay, well, let's just take some months. Bam, montage scene. And whenever you have structured it, such as that the players get to shift between how time is paced in the game and you keep that, like, what are you doing, what are you doing structure, mm -hmm. you have the ability to keep everyone engaged no matter how time is passing. Because ultimately it winds up being the table democracy telling you when to shift between the different kinds of scenes with different kinds of pacing. And it retains that immediacy no matter what you're doing. So that was that was the, the thing behind it, was realizing what the players are the ones who are really in charge of this. Because, and I'll tell you why, what really struck me was I was running Axe, which that took me a long time to get good at, and I kept trying to do those big, big longer scenes, and those those like more dungeon crawly things. I wasn't sure how to use the tools they were giving me, mm -hmm. and then I kept having the players going like, "I want to attack it. I want to do this now. I want to do this." And as soon as I was like, "Okay, roll initiative. Okay, well he says this," and just responded at the same pace that they were driving the game, it immediately all fell into place. As soon as they were in the driver's seat, as soon as they were controlling the flow of time. It worked. Okay. Because, okay. yeah, it, it, you can't dictate when how the time is going to flow, but you can respond to it. And if you have that response as a GM, you just shift those frames. Okay, you guys going to take a couple of weeks to travel over here. Well, we're in a montage then, and that means these things can happen. Okay. And because you've got that structure, you can now design for that as a play, as a GM, as a game designer. You can be like, okay. So if they have two weeks and that's a montage scene, well, I know you can train during a montage scene. Yeah. I know you can build these things during a montage scene. I, and you, you just, like, you tell them. You ask them what they do, and if they're stumped, you offer their options. Yeah. Like, oh, well, you're a courtier, right? Well, you could just you could build this social empire during this time, make these roles. Yeah, and it's Bam, not, they're doing something. And it's not the GM just sort of describing a montage. Uh, it's, mm. it's the, you know, the, you're, you're playing out moments, like just really brief moments is what it sounded like to me. And so I, you know, immediately, because, you know, just to bring it back to Wuxia, like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, 36 Chamber of Shaolin, like this is like a perfect type of, you know, sort of thing to, to, to to use to get that kind of a feel like you know where you have this this massive montage sequence to sort of simulate the training experience and it's something that i've you know like in in my games the players join a sect and they're like hey we're just going to spend three months doing x <laughs> you know it it gives you a great way of sort of managing that time and also also kind of having meaningful roles that will help determine the outcomes of things you know what i mean so it, yeah, it, it, I mean, the, obviously, you, um, this depends on how freeform you are as a GM too. But it, uh, it does, and you you run into the problem of if I can just keep rolling, why don't I just roll until I succeed? If there's no consequence yeah. or failure, and I have as much time as I want, and you need to have an answer for that as a GM and as as a game designer. Well, what if they do just keep rolling? Especially in Tansheng, where you could hold dice between rolls, mm -hmm. you will eventually roll like these ridiculous sets given enough time. And like I, I again when I was when I was playtesting it, I had players who were like, "Okay, we're we're not in combat. There's no one hunting us. 
I keep rolling until I get this gigantic set. I have literally infinite time. I will get this super huge result. And you need to know, you need to understand you're making a world where that can happen yeah. and be able to structure that. Like, because I'm, I'm dealing with fire with the amount of power that I give characters. Like, I needed a lot of structure to make sure I was keeping that in a believable universe. I don't think it's quite as bad when you're dealing with more human characters like you guys do. Uh, but still, it's good to have the structure. It's good to have a, well, a reason to roll and something they can do. I guess with that, that's a perennial issue, and there are all kinds of solutions, obviously. Um, you know, some are mechanical, like take 10 and take 20. Uh, some, that's that's you know, the classic one. Yeah, do you, do you even need to roll? If it's if there's no pressure and you know the person's going to succeed, it's probably better to let, you know. But if it's something where there's some great consequence of them just constantly spamming, then that's when yep. I think it becomes an issue. And that's that's usually a product of a, component of the game not being well thought out or or just you know the the possibility of spamming be being exploited by the players in a in a way that they weren't you know it sort of defies the spirit of the game so there's a generous mechanic yeah. that works for 90 percent of the population but then when the 10 percent of the uh you know get their hands on it it, it, it can wreck it can be like a wrecking ball going through the campaign um, oh yeah, one, one that's thing... not that's not like that's not isolated to just Wuxia or superpower game. That's every game. No, it's like it's a perennial problem. But one one place where I've encountered it is I have an optional mechanic that I like to use for, uh, like in in when I when I do Wuxia, you know, obviously kung fu techniques are very important, and learning kung fu techniques from masters and manuals are important, and you know, according to the strict rules of the book, you have to spend XP to do it. But when I'm playing with my friends, I like to do it more like it's from a movie or a book where, you know, you're, you're, you're training with, with, um, with the, the leader of beggar clan. So he's going to teach you his dog bashing stick technique. And all that's going to be required is you need to make a, a, get a total success on your, on your light melee skill roll to, to, to acquire the technique. And that works provided, you know, uh, I only allow one a day, and people aren't going crazy mm -hmm. trying to get techniques. Um, yeah, because because then you're you, then using, and that's one of the, the kind of the two ways you can do it. Because with any time you pick up the dice, you need to have a consequence or failure. The consequence in that case is it takes you one more day. Yeah, that's a fine consequence. But if you get to a point where they have a effectively infinite days, like you have thirty years to learn the technique. Okay, well that's. What's 30 times uh, well, 365? And that <laughs> That's how many rolls I get. That I'll make gets it. me to my most powerful tool as a GM in the uh, timing and pacing department. I always mm. use a calendar. And, <laughs> and, and the reason I use a calendar, and again, I have to admit, sometimes I'm more lazy than other times about the calendar. But when I'm on the ball with my calendar, my campaigns really work well. And when I'm off the ball on my calendar, that's when I encounter the most problems. And, yeah. and with, with, the, with the calendar, what you do is not only is it good for things like, hey, you know, the party is in town and they talk to some guy and they tell him they want to meet him in two weeks. You, you know, writing that down can really make things a lot easier for everybody and for yourself. But also you can, all the stuff that's going to be happening, like if, if they... If they do something and you know it pissed somebody off and you know that person's going to send like a ninja at them or something, then you can say, okay, on the 9th, a ninja's going to show up at the, at the sect headquarters or, or whatever it is. And you can also have other events that'll put time pressure on the campaign so that people can't just sit down all the time and, and master every technique in the book or, you know, uh, you know sit there and, 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 and whittle whittle whatever 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 object they've found that they can craft so that they can make you know an enormous fortune 
you know, you, you, you it can reduce spamming if it's plausible and reasonable is fine, but there should at least be things going on in the world that are gonna, uh, you know, put some time pressure on things occasionally and 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 make them maybe not feel so comfortable sitting down and and letting that time pass. Um, oh yeah, and uh, that's that's a good point. Is whenever you put a value on time that way, when it's you have X days until the army arrives, mm-hmm. you have X days worth of rations left, um, you know that kind of thing. Suddenly they've got to. There's a strategic element introduced. How do we best use this time? And that's fine. That you've designed enough at that point. Even not, even not putting rules in the game, just putting a time limit on it. That solves so many of your problems because even even the cost of oh it only takes one more day matters if you only have three days. Yes, yes. you have three days to master the dog getting sick, and like that comes up in Wuxia all the time. You only have so long to master this technique. Yeah, yeah, that's so, yeah, beautiful, beautiful handling. But um, but yeah, so I don't. Is there anything about uh, uh, timing and pacing and bookkeeping that we wanted to wanted Oof, to go Oh man. We covered some of the some of the broad strokes. Uh, like I said, I could probably talk about this until the moon crashes into the earth. Um, let me think. Is there any one other thing I want to bring up? I think the only other thing I'd like to, to mention, and this kind of dovetails into uh, you having a calendar, is whenever you have mechanics in the game that determine how fast time is passing, and like I, I structure that around a scene structure, mm. you also, as a game designer and as a GM realize that you can use those as tools. Yeah. You can, like you said, put a time limit on stuff. You can uh, put a calendar date on stuff. You can, you can even like at the, at the barest level, you could say, okay, they've, they've pissed off this, this guy. How long does it take a guy to respond? Mm-hmm. And you just look at a little chart and you just write that down and you just track the days, you know, or hours or what have you, depending on how the pacing is going. Most basic thing, just having the, having the, the, the technique to structure that having a rule system that supports that and allows you to interact with that as a GM. That's a great design. I love that. So, so I think that that'll probably wrap it up for me. Uh, okay. I'll ramble otherwise. All right. So, um, okay. So why don't we get into the next segment? All right. So moving on to the next segment, which is solutions in design, we wanted to get back into the Wuxia dungeon idea, which we touched on last episode. And so I know that you had some questions for me, and uh, I had some Wuxia Dungeons that I sent to you to sort of give you an example of what I do. Um, so I guess I'll throw the ball in your court just to get sort of what questions you had. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, and this, this kind of ties back into the pacing a little bit. Like, when we're talking about the 10-minute turn, there's a lot of, of uh, there's a lot in the, the structure of a dungeon crawl that makes it kind of ideal for a GM to sort of just shift into as far as like pacing it and, and having it have a sense of like tension mm-hmm. and like all the, all the stuff you want in an adventure, all the danger and all the thrill of surprise and the exploration element, it's all there. And it's, it's really easy to run if you just have to set a little bit of structure. Um, but I was wondering like, okay, so in, in D and D the idea is that you're kind of a medieval knight or wizard or something so there is sort of a methodical pacing to it like you're in heavy armor or you're an old man in robes like you kind of envision like the the lord of the rings characters i think is what i always envision is just kind of slowly and carefully walking but you contrast that with like a jet lee movie that guy doesn't walk slow and careful he flies and flips and does crazy wire i get you i get so like so how do you keep both those elements 
in a dungeon and make it a satisfying play experience. So that's, that's kind of my first question is like, how do you marry those? It seems like polar opposites. I mean, I don't know. I never really thought about that. I don't think it's, uh, I have never had difficulty with it when it's come up. So, I mean, normally we'll pl players go into a dungeon and they're just as cautious as, as any other, you know, game because they know there might be traps there or whatever. Um, but occasionally you'll get these moments where they get into a fight and it sort of blazes through th three rooms or so. Um, but you just kind of let it happen. It's not like, you know, if, uh, you know, if somebody, if somebody is going to, uh, you know, uh, use their, their lightness Kung Fu to get from point A to point B in the dungeon and, you know, in a heartbeat, that's fine. Uh, so I, I, I haven't really encountered that as an issue, I guess, because in, in a lot of these movies, when you do have sort of the dungeon at the end, uh, it, you know, they're, it, it, they play just like, uh, like a, like they would in an Indiana Jones movie or any other thing. It's, it's not, I don't think it's terribly different. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm missing the concern. So, um, no, I don't think so. I, I think what you're doing though is like you're you're saying that much like in in D and D, like to make it put it in purely D and D terms, you can have like a wizard or a sorcerer with feather fall or expeditious retreat or something yeah. like that. You can you can just have characters run and jump and like with a good enough check in in some editions, you can leap over chasms and climb up sheer surfaces. So like really, in a lot of ways, you're, you've got the same tool set. And you don't have this problem that I'm, I'm envisioning is happening in D and D, where there's this big gulf between character mobility and and dungeon as like hostile architecture, because oh, you only use those things when you need them, you know. Well, I guess one thing that's similar is like in uh, in in D and D, you always have to sort of be aware. Okay, does the player have teleport? Do they have this? How is that going to affect things? And uh, you know, in a in a in a game with martial arts, you have to be aware of which techniques they have, especially if it's fantastical style martial arts. So you know, like there's there's one technique in in a, in, in in the book where you can you can use your finger to 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 explode stone, and that could be used to 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 carve your way through a dungeon. And I'm happy to allow that. Um, I, you know, that sort of stuff doesn't bother me. Uh, I think I think what you sometimes get in Wuxia that you don't get so much in like a uh, an Indiana Jones type movie or a fantasy movie is is action that strains credulity a little bit. You know, it's sort of uh, yeah. like things can get a little bit uh, uh, like like mythic, but in a really explosive and fast way. And I, I, that's fine. I, I don't I don't object to somebody doing that in one of my dungeons. Um, so you know, I've, I've never I've never had any issues with with that sort of thing. Uh, I, I think I've, I mean, I've encountered all the same problems that you would encounter running dungeons, I guess, you know, like any, I guess, any, yeah. any, any problem that you could encounter in D and D you're going to encounter in a Wuxia campaign. Um, hmm. the, the only thing that I would advise is it, the, one of the reasons why D and D works so well for dungeon crawls is because you have these, these hit points that get enormous or, you know what I mean? And so play, players can sort of get what they, they can lose 20 hit points and it's not a big deal when they reach a certain level and they can still explore the yeah. dungeon. If your if your game doesn't, doesn't have a similar scale of wounding, if you're always sort of walking around with, with two health, no matter what, then, yeah. then, then it's very hard to do any kind of dungeon crawl. But in, in those cases, I would just say you can still do dungeons, just make them more compact. That's the, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the solution there. Or, or make them very, very uh, involved and 
with with a lot of opportunities for breaks but um but yeah that i i think i think more than anything else your wound total is the big determinant of hmm. how how much you can do dungeon crawls um that makes sense i've always kind of considered hit points as the player's margin for error <laughs> that's, you know their, their ability to kind of just rough it through a given area yeah i, th- so, I think that's it, definitely the case i mean it it's 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 padding like when I, I i tried to make a uh a fantasy game at one point and i really wanted all the characters to have like free health max no more i wanted them to be because i wanted like a a degree of realism to sort of underlie this fantastic world but the mm-hmm. thing i knew to, noticed right away was i also wanted dungeon crawls and i couldn't really have them um yeah because you, you need some kind of player resource yeah and there's this i've seen like willpower and those magic points as long as they have some way to lose or spend something to keep themselves alive, they get that margin of error, and they can do dangerous stuff like dungeon crawls. Yep, and, uh, and, and you can get around it by making the dungeon safer or shorter. Like, there are ways, but I couldn't do those, like, extensive, deep crawls that I wanted to be a possibility. Um, Matt, speaking of extensive, deep crawls, okay, so you, you, you made the mistake of sending me some maps, Yep, yep. and I'm drooling over them. So tell me about... First of all, the House of Paper Shadows. Uh, first of all, is this published already? Could no, I, that's could not I that's not out this? yet. That's in layout right now. So, mm-hmm. um, so whenever the layout's done, it'll be ready. But uh, that is so. The House of Paper Shadows started as an encounter that I did on the fly, where I uh, it wasn't on the fly. I did it like I came up with it that morning. But it mm-hmm. was they stormed this guy, this general's uh, estate, and he had sort of like a, a courtyard house with the, the oiled paper walls. And I decided mm-hmm. a really creepy monster would be shaper, uh, paper shadow puppets, um, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but they're these really cool uh, puppets that they often have in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in China. And, they, and you see them in a lot of wuxia movies and stuff. And they, and they look really neat, but they can also be very creepy if done right. And, <laughs> and so the way that I had them operate was the paper shadows attack your shadow. And if they strike you in the arm, you can't use your arm. If they strike you in the leg, you can't use your leg. And so they just slowly sort of paralyze you and whittle you down. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah, and that's, that, that is. Let, I'm going to pause or put a pin in that right there. That is fantastic because not only is it super creepy, it's got a great visual. It's linked to like the feel of Wuxia, but you can solve that problem with Kung Fu as a player. That's perfect. Yeah, it, re- like, it really creeped out the party. It really, like that was. A, I mean, you, you know how difficult it is to scare people properly in a mm-hmm. game. Oh yeah, it was one of the few moments where, like, you know, I could tell everybody was genuinely frightened. And I <laughs> and, and I think you know there, there was a similar type of monster in a um, in an old uh, Ravenloft module called the Created. I don't remember exactly how they worked, but I think they did. They were like puppets that did something kind of similar. And I just sort of took that idea and you know put it onto Paper Shadow puppets. And and it re- it really it really worked, and so be from that I, I developed this idea of the House of Paper Shadows, which was a secret organization that was in, like the, an intelligence agency or an information network, and it was always kind of playing both sides. Like it worked for the King of Hyann, but also worked for the Empire, and it had all you know. Nobody really knew where it stood, and it was I always just kind of used it in my campaign as as this secretive, dangerous organization that I never expected people would know what was really at the heart of it. And then one day, one of my players was like, hey, just so you know, I'm going to attack the House of Paper Shadows next session. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? You're, you're not going to tell Why would you do that? And, and he's like, oh, they're pissing me off. I'm going to attack the House of Paper Shadows next session. And I was like, okay, but can you give me two weeks? Can you give me two weeks so that I can have time to develop the House of Paper Shadows? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what's inside the House of Paper Shadows at this point. Yeah. And we, we need to do a section in the future about begging as a GM to have enough time to design the next dungeon. <laughs> Because I've done that exact same thing where, where the guys are like, we're going to storm the Knoll's hideout. And I'm like, oh, no, that's well, a giant fortress. Give and, me a little bit. And honestly, you know, it was totally reasonable for him to say, I'm going to do it this session because that's generally enough time. But this was like a this was a, a thing in the game that had become so important. I wanted to get it right. And mm -hmm. and so what I did was I, I asked him for two weeks because I just wanted two weeks to think about what I wanted to be in there. And so I spent two weeks just thinking. And then I started making the content, and and and, yeah, and, it, and it, yeah. yeah, it came and it came out really. I, I think it came out good. Um, and I won't I won't get too into it because I don't want to spoil it for people that are going to play it. But like, like uh, but it was you know, it's one of these you know it's it's a it's an earthen roundhouse, so it's a circular dungeon. Mm -hmm. It's multiple levels. It's got an inner ring and an outer ring, and it also has a lot of you know, this is where I, there's always that question of how much magic and supernatural element to add. I think when you're dealing with dungeons and stuff, the supernatural definitely makes it easier. And I went sort of all yeah. in with the, with the magical elements here. So there are things like, um, uh, you know, the, again, I'm trying to do it without spoiling things, but there's, there's an, there's an area, so. there's an area in the map that can sort of send you on a time travel adventure, which is sort of a thing that I like to do. Um, and, and, and so it's sort of like a dungeon within the dungeon that leads to a mystery. Um, but that's fantastic. But, but yeah, so it's, it, you know, it's, uh, again, this, this is something that, uh, I think if you have structures in your world, you have dungeons. Do you know what I mean? Like if you have, yeah, I, I think the dungeon gets maligned as a modern term. People are always like, Oh, dungeon crawls are so cliche. Listen, dude. If you are in a house, you are in a dungeon. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> because you, the thing that makes a dungeon a thing that's really ideal for adventures is that it has a natural pacing mechanism. It has doors. You can close yeah. a door, get a little break. You can bar a door and defend it. You can you can open a door and and get the content in the next room. That's an immediate pacing mechanism that's that's linked together. And like I wanted to point that out with this one. Like, there's a large kind of central courtyard area, and like, so I guess it's a kung fu game. You can kind of leap over some of these inner rings, I imagine. Yeah, that and was so, something that happened right away. In fact, because you have the oh yeah the, the, the running on rooftops and all that stuff. Um, that's, so, that's what we call the labyrinth problem. If you make a maze, they will jump over it. Yep. So, that's just because it's the easiest solution, right? But it doesn't matter because here's the thing about this dungeon. All, like, really, it doesn't matter if you walk through the front door or if you leap over and get on the inside. It's a matter of which room you're going into in that ring. Mm -hmm. And so it turned out – so when that first happened, I freaked out. I'm like, oh, no, my dungeon's broken because people can jump over the walls. And then I was mm -hmm. like, oh, it's the same as if they walked in through the front door. So it's fine. Um mm -hmm. Yeah, and they even if they just walked in the front door, like the biggest ring, of course, is the outside, so it has the most rooms. Yes. Or maybe just the largest rooms. It has a lot of rooms. I'm looking at the key here. And, like, if they want the content in those, they've got to open the door to that room and go and deal with that room's thing. Yes. That's yeah. a great pacing mechanism because they get to choose when they open the door 
and you can even throw a wrench in it. You can be like, okay, there are guards patrolling. So now, like again, like we pointed out in the last conversation, there's a time mechanic. That's wonderful, wonderful pacing cool. mechanism. And, and I sort of distinguish usually between sort of like dead dungeons and living dungeons. And this would be like a yeah. living one where you have residence and defense mechanisms. And that means, you know, if you just jump into that inner ring, then you have to suddenly contend with a lot more, you know, uh, challenges. Um, mm-hmm. Because the, the obvious solution, which is jump over it, becomes the most dangerous solution because, of course, they anticipated that. Yeah. So the new obvious solution is let's sneak in. And suddenly... You're doing a, a very methodical dungeon crawl, and you're gonna get a lot more content. But what I what I like about this kind of dungeon is you can run it as a dungeon, but you don't have to. Like if the players go there and they're friendly, they can just be guests at the house. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not something where they have to go in and explore every room. They could go in and get assigned to a guest room, and you know. You know, walk around at their leisure if they're friendly to the place. There, are, there are other, there are other approaches to dealing with it. And I, I think again, when you have oh, a living yeah. dungeon, you have more options like that available to you. Um, but there's all adage in my games too, which is a dead dungeon will become a living one because if they find an empty dungeon, my players they'll make it their fortress all every time. Yeah, that that'll that'll definitely happen. Um, and again, I mean, the only reason I, I tell people, you know, Wuxia Dungeon, Wuxia Dungeon, is because I just find people are very resistant to the idea of using a dungeon in a campaign. But like you were saying, there's a reason people use dungeons. Like, dungeons, they just work. They've been around forever in gaming because they're a very reliable, you know, way to run an adventure. And not everybody likes to do them, but if you if you... If you, I think, if you make a game and there's not the possibility of a dungeon being used, then, then that it, it can deprive people of that tool. And and one of the things I realized early on was, geez, there's a lot of dungeons in Wuxia material anyway. So, you know, it's not like I'm violating. Like I, if at first I thought I was violating a principle of Wuxia, but then I realized, really. yeah, no, it's it, they're really prevalent. They're, they're, there's 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 inns and dungeons are both surprisingly prevalent in Wuxia. Um, so, so I feel that it's a, a really, a really nice pairing. Um, you know, oh it, yeah. And, like oh, a, a thing I'd like to point out about like why they're effective, and I'm looking at this immediately. The thing that springs out to me as a, a myopic jerk is that it's numbered. All these rooms have a number, and that was, corresponds to a key. Whenever I want to talk about content and content delivery, this is what I'm talking about. You as a GM now know what this room is, what it's used for who's in it, all that stuff. And whether they're exploring it or they're trying to assassinate somebody in it or they're holed up in it and setting on fire or they're guests and that's where they're staying and they're exploring at their leisure, no matter how they interact with it, you know what the content is. That's what I mean about content delivery. If you just have, if you just had written, instead of seeing this beautiful mapped dungeon, if you had just written, there is this roundhouse, there are people in it, you would not have this content on a key that yeah. you could then use in a, in a way that wasn't only something that was convenient for you in-game, but also gave a sense of permanency to players. Let's go back to that red room. Let's go back to that place we set on fire that one time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, no. That's... I mean, it's, it's... Speaking of... I mean, this is not quite dungeon-related, but sort of. Uh, one, of my, one of the best structural stories I had in the campaign was when... I had an inn that was run by a sect called the uh, the Firestick Gang, and they had packed their entire inn with gunpowder as a sort of last resort 
mechanism that they could use to blow up sections in order to defeat enemies that were encroaching on their, you know, on their space. And when my players realized this, they just exploited it immediately and blew <laughs> up the whole inn um, and the fire stick gang with them. But um, sounds about right. But um, but you had mentioned um, the Alexandrians right up on on Jacang the dungeon, and so you know I I, I, I read that material uh, mm-hmm. this morning. Uh, you know I, I I I quite like the Alexandrian stuff. I'm a fan of his uh, three. Uh, I think it's the three clue rule. Is the uh, yeah is the, the article. three clue rule is one of those really big used ones. Yeah. It's also one of the the more light kind of articles where it just kind of it's like one or two articles and then it's done. The Jacques the Dungeon articles are deep. like really heavy. Yeah, yeah, like that plums it deep. You feel like you're doing a dungeon delve reading those. And uh, and also this is something that it feels like a lot of the a lot of this stuff has sort of uh, made its way into the um, into the online discussions about dungeons. So. Uh, so definitely, you know, people listening, I would recommend checking out the, the Jacang the Dungeon. But what you know, what was it specifically about this article that uh, had attracted your interest? Well, I I read it on the heels of um of the uh, what was it called? the process based uh, like running a game with processes mm-hmm. and like I, I'd already ran D and D a lot before I played this one. Like I'd been a D and D GM for like six or seven years at this point. And for me, whenever I made my home dungeons, or like when you buy a module, they really weren't very fun. Uh, and I and the article, the thing that really got my gears turning about it was it pointed out why, which is they're linear. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at a lot of dungeons, and I was designing these a lot too, what it is is it's five boxes connected by a single line that links them all, or something similar to that. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have any choice in the dungeon. It doesn't really make any sense as architecture. In well, a lot of dungeons. Were you running a lot of 3E uh, dungeons? 3 and 3.5 were, were mine. I think... Uh, and that's... Yeah, so, that's like kind of where that that really got bad, I think. I feel... The, well, I feel know. like... Not to interrupt you, but I feel like during that era, the big thing that was going on is everything was structured around sort of the, the challenge rating of encounters over the course mm-hmm. of the session. And that applied to even dungeon encounters where you were so where I remember the advice was to like you want to have like CR blank, CRY, CR this, CR that, you know, and and if that's how you're structuring your adventures, it's going to apply to everything. And so it makes sense that the uh, uh, that, it, you know, a lot of dungeons kind of felt that way, too. I, I was feeling that, too. And I started out, uh, you know, back in the 80s. So, you know, back, you know, where, where it was not, it wasn't that way. And I think I think it was something that emerged in the early 2000s and became kind of a, uh, uh, I don't know, it was affecting my enjoyment of play. Um, oh, yeah. And it gave me a really poor impression of D&D initially. But learn and I learned about kind of the history of like and the, the designer, the, the Jacques, the eponymous Jacques was then Paul, now now Janelle Jacques was one of the like groundbreaking geniuses of dungeon design. And the article largely just kind of dissects. Uh, what I've come to term the Jacques method of like making a dungeon an interesting dynamic place instead of a linear, predictable, boring slog. And it's amazing in its depth and its its complexity. And also it's like how, how thorough, Justin Alexander's a great writer and he's really thorough about exploring the subject of, okay, these dungeons are great. And he, he goes back to, um, what was the one he's always mentioning in that article? Um, Cameras of Thracia, I think is the one he dissects a lot. And he's like, he's going back to caverns, and he's like, this is why this was good. 
this designing the game in this way or the dungeon in this way made the architecture matter in this way and so this will happen in your game yeah and it's amazing like the thought that was put into it no and it's funny because i had not actually read this article but these ideas i i had i had acquired over the years from online discussions with people and so you'll look if you look at that yaogong palace map you will mm-hmm. see the, you know the multiple uh what is it the multiple entrances thing uh you know yeah, the idea of the non-linear uh i'm sorry you know, let me pull up Yaogong. We uh, have to talk about this one too because it's a beautiful map. But but I speaking, really want to run this now. Speaking of Jake too, the another a book that that uh, that she wrote uh, way back when that I would really recommend. And I don't know her work as well as some other people, but uh, the campaign source book and catacomb guide for Two E that was like my bible in the nineties <laughs> as a GM, and I took so many like pieces of advice from that, like like everything from not just like the. Uh, like the campaign stuff, but like the the little tricks for for having like handouts and stuff for your for your players. There was all kinds of great advice in there. Um, but uh, but yeah, but like I think I think the uh, I think the really uh, I guess uh, what would you call it? the killer app in this series of articles is the uh, is part two the Jacquet techniques section because that yeah. really breaks down all of the. Uh, all of the sort of individual, uh, you know, things that you can do to make the dungeon work. And also the, the other thing that I noticed about this that I liked is he does caution against taking any individual part of it too much to heart. So mm. he does say, like, you know, like, like, do this, but don't do this all the time. Like, you do need to sort of break this rule occasionally. Uh, you know, just, just make a point of, like, you know, knowing why you're doing that. Um but uh, but yeah, but I, I think uh, I thought I thought that was a very useful article that you and uh, um, and and again the 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 one that that has always really impressed me was the three three clue rule, which which if you're doing investigations is a is a really handy way of avoiding some problems. Um, oh yeah, and, and three clue three clue is like I said one of the more kind of digestible articles. I think that if you started if I had started the Alexandrian. With the uh, Jacking the Dungeon series, I probably would have given up on it because I was like, "This is too dense. I'll never use this." But Three Clue, like I read that in an evening, and like it just set my mind on fire. So I was just like, "Wow, you really, you really could just say, you know uh, structure a game this way," and it gives you a way to use your prep as a GM and kind of get you thinking about, "Well, how will this prep manifest in the game?" That's what I've been terming content delivery. Mm-hmm. Just knowing, like, I need to prep something. I want it to do this. How do I do that? And Justin Alexander is my go-to guy for that. Because... Uh, he, he's very thorough. He's very thorough. Yeah. He's a very thorough... Uh, he's a very thorough approach to gaming. I think he might have even expanded those three clue rules into other... Because I, I feel like there were much larger articles that came later. Um, but I could be wrong. I might be confusing it with another series that he did. I know I know node based design which linked into them. I'll, I'll I think that's go. what I'm, that, might, that might be what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I'm going to be mining that site again for future content. So uh, let's let's conclude with a discussion of Yaogong Palace here. Like, tell us about that a little bit. Oh, so that's just the um, it's sort of this great evil underground dungeon that uh, is where the the former demon demon emperor used to have his palace, and this is sort of the, the underground chambers where he was ultimately sealed in a. Uh, 
uh, in the, in, at the end of a big battle with Sunan and Bao, who were like the, the, the heroes of the setting. And it was just, it's just a place that, you know, I had to make because I said it existed in the rule book. And I was like, oh, now I got to like make this thing. And, uh, and so I, I, but I, but I applied a lot of those techniques. There's multiple entryways to the dungeon. You know, there's, you go, I was the, a lot of these sort of thoughts were in my mind when I was, uh, when I was making it. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know, did you have, I don't know if I have much to say about it, except for it's an example <laughs> of what I would say is sort of a, a way to game, you know what, it, it's, it's a way to sort of take some wuxia things and make them into a, a dungeon environment that's much more extensive than you might sort of initially imagine possible in the genre. So, uh, so there's like in the upper corner, you see an area called the Pure Ones, and this is a place where, uh, you know, this, this dungeon was originally inhabited by a group called Phoenix Sect, Pure Phoenix Sect. And the people of the sect who became sort of the, the great masters of it, they uh, developed this technique where they would, they would hold their final breath to attain a sort of temporary immortality that enabled them to become the guardians of this inner chamber that they want to protect. And so you go into this, you go into this section and there are these desiccated remains of, of these old abbesses and, and abbots who are, who are, who are really still alive and they, and they have a few more breaths in them. And that translates in the ability to do, you know, each breath is the equivalent of either a Kung Fu strike, you know, them saying something or them moving. And so, uh, so, you know, so that, so they, they're very limited in what they can do before they expire. But they're kind of an interesting hurdle for players to have to work their way through. Um, it's interesting, and uh, especially and I, because, like, I mean, and that's one of those that's one of those really great little challenges where it's a puzzle in addition to being what, potentially a combat. So, like, because if they have to use their breath to do like a lot of different actions, you could sort of trick them or draw them out into an extended like war of attrition and beat them that way because they'll eventually expire. So if you knew yeah. your lore about this particular dungeon, like if you'd done your research, you'd already be coming prepared with that. And you could also learn that just by fighting them and being surprised when one of them just collapses and dies. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's great. And so, uh, there's, there's a lot to appreciate in this map, Brendan. I'm not going to lie to you. Dude. Like, the River of Mercury in the middle is is so... It's at once so, like, gonzo and so cool. They're just it's It's hard to appreciate these little things like that enough. What I, um, I I do want to uh, I do want to dig into okay so there's some kind of powerful demon trapped here can he get out <laughs> he can but it's very involved um, it's a very okay. very involved procedure um, also some of his generals are trapped there as well oh uh, god and so so are, are we oh, talking like is this like the equivalent of awakening an arc demon in D and D or is this like oh god like Sauron showed up we're doomed campaign is, over kind uh, of thing? I mean th well it's not campaign over well. It's a very bad thing to do, but certain okay. part I have had players that were trying to do it. I had a party that wanted to unleash the demon emperor. Um, there's more than because, one way to approach because, this stuff. Because, because well, so the, there's an aspect to this game where um, uh, the the pl players who are, who are uh, perform rituals to the demon emperor they can get things. You know what I mean? They can get benefits from that relationship. So there was a, a player who did that and tried to tried to unleash the Demon Emperor. But then when he realized that the Demon Emperor was much more powerful and evil than he thought, he changed his mind and went another way. 
Um, but but the one, one, the river of mercury, the thing that I'm proud about with that is uh, I I actually like contacted a science teacher to uh, to to figure out what happens when people fall into mercury, and and so I feel like the mechanics I came up with for that were reflective of what the person told me so it's not like you know not like i did deep deep research but i at least did my due diligence to find out you know okay if somebody actually falls into mercury how difficult is it to uh to to stay buoyant um and and not 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 just you know end up taking mouthfuls of mercury um that's that's great and you know what that adds because you have to abstract that for rules of course that's not going to be perfect science but like you know, what's great about that is it adds a verisimilitude to the to your game that it wouldn't have otherwise had. That doing that kind of research, I did a very similar thing with the effect chart in Tianxiang, uh, where like I looked up like okay, how much does a f- this thing weigh? So like when I did the power like the lifting chart, I was like okay, so they can do this much in pounds or kilograms, and that's equivalent to lifting a crane or like yeah. this. So there's both descriptive and numerical. You know, and it's just a little thing that if I hadn't done the research, it wouldn't be in the game. It'd be harder to run it. No, those you know? little bits of research, that's one of the things that makes Dungeons so fun is that you have these opportunities where like, well, what would happen if this was in there? And, you know, you can you can sort of look it up and try to, get, you know. Uh, but one, one technique I've found that's just very helpful, contact a, you know, there, there are so many professors working at so many schools with specialties who are more than happy to answer these questions if you write to them <laughs> out of blue. So... So I'll regularly contact people and and uh, and ask them because I, I you know I, I mean I there you know if, if I can find the information you know in in books or online I will but sometimes you know the information is difficult to get if if you're especially if it's a gaming thing if you have a very specific question about mm-hmm. you know like what happens if somebody gets stabbed with this kind of weapon or something you know it's it, and and you know. It can be it can be difficult without asking the proper person. Um, yeah, that's that's some very particular knowledge, you know. Um, no, you know, my my doctor is is sick to death of my uh, my my questions. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so I don't know. But 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 Wuxia dungeons, I think, are uh, again, they're also things that like you see them in the movies, like even like in a film like The Bride with White Hair. You know, the the way that like uh, a lot of the sect headquarters are are. are shot resemble dungeon environments um oh, yeah. and so anytime you would go to another sect to steal a book that's kind of like a dungeon crawl in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways um you know it can be it can be much more superficial it can just be sort of a you know a, a sort of broadly laid out residence with a hall that you go to but a lot of times there are these underground chambers like in uh you know there's a movie called web of death and they have this vast extensive network of underground chambers in it um and so, you know, I, I, I think uh, I think it's a, a very good fit for the genre. But um, but yeah, after looking at these maps, man, I got to agree like these because they don't only say dungeon to me. They say like really specifically, you need to have cool martial artists going through this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, so that's well, yeah, because just in, in wonderful. Russia, the, the martial artists serve a very particular role. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're mm-hmm. like the they're they're I mean, they they are the people that would be be going to these sites for sure all right so the uh the next segment that we're going to get to is sharing inspiration uh and and this time around you you wanted me to watch ninja scroll and i, I wanted did. you to watch, I forced you, watch it. you did well and it, it was it was not painful and i had seen it before when i was very young so it wasn't like it was unfamiliar 
but I, I hadn't watched a lot of anime since at least, I don't know, like early 2000s sometime. That's kind of when I, I started, stopped watching it, too. But, like, I, I love Ninja Scroll so much. You don't even know, man. <laughs> I, I've got such a such a boner for that movie. It's so ooh, it's so cool. Well, All right, and you, you made me watch Watt Price Honesty, and I, I, I will admit, as soon as you recommended it, you were like, this is really dark, and I'm like, okay, i got to watch it now. And I did it that night, and I'm like, <laughs> ah, he was right. It was really dark. Yeah, yeah. It was well, so dark, it was almost farcical. Yeah, it got, it got pretty, yeah, I... I I would I would agree that it gets into that territory. Um, but I want to spoil it, but that last scene I almost laughed because I was like, "You're kidding me!" Well, Wuxia gets into scenes like that. Um, it's a pretty. It's uh, but uh, but with 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 uh, Ninja Scroll, I had not. This came out in '93, and that's probably when I saw it last. Like I I, I probably like '93 or '94. Like I remember in my later years of high school, a fr- this is the whole Ninja Squirrel story that I was telling you, where I, I was I was convinced yeah. there was a movie called Ninja Squirrel because of the way my friend said it, and I, I remember watching it at his house, and and I I have like zero recollection of of anything beyond a few key scenes, and and. And it was it was it was really nice to to I, I got it in Blu-ray. I I will say the Blu-ray didn't you know I was hoping that my Blu-ray was going to have sort of the widescreen effect, but it didn't. But it still looked really good. Um, the aspect ratio on mine's weird too. I think I got the DVD version. You're right. The aspect ratio is like full screen. Yeah. Not really the ideal thing to see it in. No. But then and I remember that it's sort of a trashy '90s VHS anime, and like yeah. suddenly it's got an air of authenticity because of that aspect that, ratio. That was that was exactly my thought because I was like, what am I doing complaining? Like when I first saw this, it was on a crappy tube television <laughs> on VHS. It, it, it you know I, I'm sure I like I would be complaining up a storm today if somebody made me watch something on a tube tv with vhs and so you know who am i to complain about about the the aspect ratio um yeah, so, yeah. i quickly forgot the aspect ratio mostly because again i'm so in love with this movie okay so let me let, let me talk about what it's about because like this this movie is basically the reason i role play <laughs> Because I saw that, and like right after that, I, I started getting into World of Darkness and D and D, and I was like, "Hey, I could do, I could do Ninja Scroll," yeah. and that thought propelled me to doing D and D for a long time and doing the general role play stuff. So it's it's one of those it's one of those things where it's it's Japanese because uh, it's an anime, and so the story is really really focused and it's really simple. And you'd never think with a story this simple that it could be this explosively amazing. But it is. It's really great. Okay, so it's and it's just it revolves around this this guy, Jubei, who's he's a Ronin. He, he doesn't have a clan anymore, which is important uh, later on. But like at first it's just like, eh, I, I'm doing stuff because I'm a I'm not a samurai. Or I'm, I'm a samurai by caste and birth, but unfortunately my clan's dead, so yeah. I need the money. And um it just sort of follows him, and he he sort of gets roped into this this thing that's happening because like it's it's got a little dual plotline initially. It's got a, a protagonist and a deuteragonist. The deuteragonist, I can never remember her name. I always call her the ninja girl. Um, you remembered her name, but I couldn't. I can't even remember it. I'm just going to continue calling her the ninja girl because I can't remember it for the life of me. I think it's Kegaro. But, uh, Kegaro was, I think, her name. That's Ke- they, Kegaro? something like that. All right, we'll we'll call her Kegaro. That's that's probably wrong, but I'm going to move on. <laughs> It's like, I can't remember it, for the love of God. All right, and, like, she is, she's a ninja, and she's, like, the food taster. She's the poison taster, and she wants to go with all the other ninjas on this little thing that they're, they're Damio sends them to do, and they all get slaughtered. I mean, like, it's not even a fight. They're annihilated, and it's super gory. 
and it's not like by just some dude. It's like by this this huge guy, this monster of a guy with a boomerang, this giant metal boomerang. And like everything about the scene, when I was a kid, because I watched this and I was like 10 at most, the first time I saw it, even as an adult, I didn't expect anything that was going to happen. It was yeah. so sudden and so brutal and so weird. And boomerang, why? Well, I, that's I one guess. of the things that I found so refreshing about anime when I first encountered it is, you know, it, probably when I was in high school. Um, it's just that it, it it defied a lot of sort of the rules and expectations I had going into anything. Like, you know, like I like I you know up until uh, up until uh, uh, until the nineties, my idea of of a, of a dark cartoon would have been, you know, the Black Cauldron. Like that was about as dark as is is. Yeah, I don't think it ever. Uh, I'm trying to think. Like, I, at that point, I'd seen uh, Ralph Bakshi's Wizards, so I, I, I have pretty high standards for dark. Well, there were there were the Bakshi, yeah, there were the Wizards and the Lord of the Ring movies that he did. Um, I think he just did one movie actually, and there was also the Fire and Ice movie. But, but the thing about those is, I don't think I saw the Lord of the Rings movie until I was in the seventh grade, and the Wizards movie my dad made me watch when I was a kid. But I, I have to be honest, I never really, I didn't remember it until years later, and. Uh, but but I think by and large, you know, even by those standards, though, the stuff that's going on in this movie is is way outside. Like, yeah, the the, the boxy not, stuff is still predictable to a certain degree. This to a certain degree. Yeah. I, I don't ever want to call boxy predictable. But I mean, like, you know, it doesn't have it's it's from our native culture. It's from America. Yeah. So, like, there's a certain like comprehensibility to it, even though it is abstract. But Ninja Scroll is not. It's from a very different culture, and yeah. like it's it's amazing how unique and unusual that was. And you can't like you, like you said, you can't undersell how much nothing else available was like this at the time. Yeah. You watch Ninja Scroll. That was the only way you could get something that like Ninja Scroll. You didn't have. There was no Crunchyroll back then. You know, there was there was no there was no One Punch Man. So there wasn't anything you could do to like get this fixed. So you saw this and it blew your mind. Yeah. What I remember, and again, I, I mean, I had people that were way more into anime than I was, but I was still keyed into it. I remember, um, I remember around this time, and I, my dates are probably way off, but Akira <laughs> was another one that was was floating around. Yeah, Vampire right. Hunter D was one that was floating around, and um, uh, Ghost in the Shell was the other one that was really big. And, oh yeah, Ghost in the Shell did come out back then. Yeah, and so and we and, and and I think what was it? My neighbor Totoro is probably another one that and Grave of the Fireflies, but I, I don't remember exactly when they were available. And you would also have the TV shows, but mm-hmm. uh, but 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 yeah, this stuff was like at least for me. I mean, it wasn't like like today. If you get into a genre, like okay, when you find a new genre of anything that you like, what's your first move? What do you do? Well, that you look it up on the internet, and you and you, you get a list, right? You get a yeah, list of a okay. List. And so, you can even get them ranked by fellow fans and, yep. and critics. Didn't exist in the yeah. '90s. Yeah, it was, gone. it was it was nothing like that. You had to you'd have to like where I lived. You'd I'd have to go to to Salem to to the to one of the local comic stores, or I'd have to go all the way to Boston to like yep. uh, you know I can't even like Newberry Comics or uh, a place like that or Tower Records or something. Um, oh yeah, I, I don't even think there was a place that sold anime within driving distance. I caught it on the festival of anime back when Sci-Fi did that. Back when Sci-Fi was Sci-Fi. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> and, and that's even more random because like you're just flipping through channels, 
And, like, I think that's what happened was I was flipping through channels and I flipped to Ninja Scroll and I was like, oh, it's a cartoon. I love cartoons. Even, mm. as, a, even as, like, even as I was growing up, I never lost my love of cartoons. A lot of kids are like, ah, it's kid stuff. Yeah. When they become a teenager. Nah, not me. I was like, nah, Sailor Moon's cool. Let's, let's keep moving. So I had no shame about my cartoon love back then. And oh. so I was like, I'll watch this. And oh my god. Anyway, right. I, I should get back to the actual plot, huh? <laughs> yeah, totally oh yeah, why don't you, you can finish your recap. Alright, sorry. Okay, so the point being is that all of her ninjas, fellow ninjas get annihilated in a gruesome way. And she and Jubei's path kind of just it sort of crosses, and they kind of just get tangled up in this this plot, because as it turns out, these guys aren't just bad guys, they're like super powerful martial arts bad guys called, I think it's called the Kaimon Devils is their name, and there's a bunch of them. It's not like one, it's a bunch of them with a bunch of unique, weird powers, and they there's this, like, Shogunate-era, like, high-level high politics stuff, and they get mixed up with the government, and, like, the focus of the movie, despite how big the actual stakes are, the focus of the movie stays in that town, this this town they, they, the, where the devils have killed everyone, and it's basically a linear series of Jubei and, and his, his lady ninja friend, whose name I've again forgotten, just going through one after another, fighting the Kaimon devils. And it's great. It's almost structured like no. a Metal Gear Solid game or a Mega Man game. No, and it's and, and also, I mean, I know you know I know the, the program is obviously called uh, you know Wusha Workshop, but I feel like this is the sort of thing that sort of in it's still close enough. And and like the you had you know there's a, there's clearly a martial world here, and yeah. there's eccentric characters populating that martial world. And that opening scene when he's on that bridge over the water that so reminded me. There's a movie that came out recently, in fact, called uh, Swordmaster. That has a very similar type of opening sequence. Um, you know, it just it. But 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 I guess for me, what I really liked about it, number one, the action scenes in this were tremendously entertaining. Um, yeah, no it, kidding. It, Talk about high watermark. It it had it had. What I liked about the action scenes is they were, they were very kinetic and and exciting. But they would do things that would totally surprise you. Um, you know, oftentimes involving very very thin threads. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it was, it, it, there were, there were so many things that would happen and then you wouldn't think about them and then they would become important later in a fight. And that, that was, just, it was, it was just really cool in that respect. But as a, as a game master sort of going back to this, cause like I said, I have not watched anime in ages. One of the things that, that I, that I really liked watching this again. And again, this, this was like watching it for the first time. Cause I really remembered so little of what, of the content, um, it reminded me of like how powerful just being free to really go in an imaginative direction with with uh, with monsters and abilities and things like that can be in this kind of a setting. And what it was what it was sort of like if, if I were if I were to construct a campaign tomorrow based on that, like if I were like to be inspired <laughs> to make a new campaign, you know, I, I'd probably go in the direction of of taking a lot of these fantastical elements that were present but doing it to create a totally new setting that sort of just is inspired by all of those key elements as possible. Um, and, you know, there was just this sense of I was exploring a world going on in the movie, and that was the yeah. thing. I, what, and, like, gamifying it. We really should gamify it, because I could, I could talk about it forever. I love this yeah, movie. Yeah, how would, you, how would I, you gamify this one? Okay, so... One of the things that's important is it's basically a string of boss encounters. So it's kind of structured like Shadow of the Colossus, where the next thing you will do is encounter a boss. You're not really sure where, but you will encounter a boss. And, like, 
what that's that's a game and this movie is structured like that game and you could structure an RPG around this very same concept you don't have to structure the whole RPG but like individual encounters should be structured this way and I think actually a lot of games naturally do this D&D does this really well where you encounter a monster you don't know what it can do and so part of the fight is kind of figuring out the puzzle of what do I do to beat this guy mm. like how what can he do can I survive this like, what's my margin for error? Yeah. How do I approach this and hurt it? Like, one of the first battles is a Jubei is a swordsman. He's a really good swordsman, but his opponent has invincible rock skin yeah. and is super huge and strong. So he keeps hitting him with a sword. It's doing nothing, and that's great. That's great because he's he's doing he's trying different tactics and strategies to beat him, and eventually he does. Like it. And again, like it, it, there's a plot point involved there that I don't want to spoil too bad. Yeah. But like, it's all of the encounters are like that. With the blind swordsman, it's similar. The swordsman is way better than Jubei, and he's not. He's blind, so he keeps using the flashing of his sword to distract Jubei, putting him at a disadvantage. Yeah. And we get a nice and bamboo. Got to figure out how to beat him. We get a nice bamboo forest in that scene too. Which I yeah, that's really cool too. Uh, uh, so some environmental interaction there. So, but and you would do it as a series of boss encounters is kind of how you would approach this, it sounds like. I, I Like, if I was going to structure a whole campaign around it, yeah, I would. Or it, This would really be a great one or two shot yeah. as, as, as far as, like, presenting so, it. But as far as, like, a takeaway lesson, as just a general lesson, make it so that the players can't predict your bad guys. Mm. And so they have to kind of think of, I can't just roll a d20 at this how do I role play in a way that gives me an advantage? How yeah. do I interact with my environment? What what weakness does this thing have? You know, that kind of stuff. Okay, so I guess if I'm thinking about it in those terms, in terms of like how would I make the sort of series of encounters with these bad guys happen, I guess it, the way that I would do it is I would just, I, I would use the, the grudge tables that I use. Mm. to uh, <laughs> So, because it's because basically he ends up with a big grudge with the, with the eight devils and they want to destroy him, right? So... Uh, oh yeah. So, so, so the way that I would do that is I would just roll, you know, however often I thought was necessary to determine if there was an encounter with one of the bosses and with which boss, and 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 that would probably be my approach to it um, to give it sort of an element of the unknown. Um, and I the thing that I would like about that is that would allow me to to still have this kind of a plot going if there was something else occurring in the campaign, like if the players were dealing with something else, I could still have this kind of hanging over them. And and I find that in terms of like the pacing issue we were talking about before, that's like a really great way to to uh, to to bring the pace to a certain a certain speed if you need more time. Um, oh yeah. And that's a that's a good point. If you wanted just to, to lift the whole Kaimon Devil thing, where there's a group of super powerful bad guys, united in purpose and the enemy of the party, and just sprinkle that throughout a campaign, that does so much great stuff because they're just wandering around doing whatever. They're in a Wushi dungeon, and suddenly something explodes, and they're in the middle of a bossing con. They're like, "Oh my god, it's that guy from the Kaimon Devils." Yeah. We know what he's up to. He's ambushed us. We're getting bushwhacked. And and that what we, again, is kind of stereotyped as a random encounter winds up being something that, no, this is a living part of the plot. Yeah. Roll from a chart and really easy to put into a game. You know, you don't, it's even better if you don't structure it specifically because then you as a GM get to be surprised by when the devils strike and who yeah. strikes and how. 
And you can you also know? you can also tie it like it, it, uh, clearly it depends on what the party's actually going like what they're doing uh, that 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 that's being interrupted by these encounters. But if they're doing something else and and the enemies that that, that you're 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 using are are intelligent. You know they might do things to thwart the party, and and so if the party is going to the dungeon for a specific reason, maybe the the Kaimon Devil that they encounter that, you know, at that location, uh, tries to use the dungeon against them somehow, or try, is the, you know tries to get to whatever they're trying to get first. You know, like if there's like the you know if there's some great sword they're trying to acquire, maybe the Kaimon Devil already has it by the time they show up. You know, like oh yeah, or even. Even better, make it a ticking clock element. I think you got a lot of time to get into this dungeon. You just saw a Kaimon Devil rush in there at top speed. You got to beat him to the sword. Yeah, and I and I got to say the Kaimon. I really loved the details of these of, of, of these guys. Like they they had really really fun powers uh, and abilities. Yeah. Um, you know that, that made them really dangerous and te- and like like they felt menacing. Like every one of these encounters felt truly menacing. And yeah, like and, all the encounters are like bare-knuckle, horrible, like, edge-of-your-seat encounters with really colorful, interesting bad guys. Yeah. And, like, Jubei doesn't... The the great things about the the time focus of the movie is that this happens over a day. So Jubei doesn't learn any magic techniques. He doesn't uh, doesn't get stronger or better at all. He's the same character, same level in RPG terms, and he's just being creative in how he's going about fighting these guys. And it's wonderful yeah i i i, I mean I mean, number one I'm, I'm i you know i i like i said i picked up the blu-ray when you recommended it. i'm glad i did because now i can i can watch it and uh you know it, you know it's definitely yes. going to be something i want to i'm going to be uh it's going almost to like again. a monster manual where you want to flip between scenes and be like how'd the yeah. b guy do that one thing with his back you know like, you don't have to watch the movie to get stuff out of it. You can just flip between the scenes you like. Well, it's funny because I was watching this. I was like, why did I stop watching anime? Because like, I, I, I was really enjoying myself. And, it, you know, it occurred to me, I haven't seen an anime in so long. And, and uh, you know, I just, I just haven't, I, I haven't watched them in years. And now it's, uh, it's sort of on my mind. Like, oh, maybe I should start watching anime again. Um, the majority yeah. of anime I, I can't get into because the pacing is really like decompressed. But this yeah. one didn't have that problem. This was like Silver Age comic where it's like, and now this is happening, and now this yeah. is happening. Explosions! Yeah, there was, that was a, my interest a, was kept. Yeah, there's a lot going on in it. Um, and the one I had you watch was uh, What Price Honesty, and we were, uh, uh, and so and so this one I'll give a quick summary. It's about a group of constables, and the lead constable is played by Jason Pai Piao, and his name is uh, uh, He Zhong Heng, and they're trying to be righteous in a world where the constables are all really corrupt, and their superiors are taking bribes and working with criminals, and to go down the course of being a righteous constable is just basically suicide. And the character fully commits to being, being righteous in the setting against the, the advice of pretty much everybody that talks to him. Um, and at great cost to everyone who yeah. gives him the, the advice of, Hey, maybe back off with this a little. Yeah. 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 It, it, it has consequences. Um, and so it was, it was, again, it was one of these movies where the interesting thing for me about it was the viewer start, you know, you normally, when you watch a movie like this, it's very easy to sort of stay with the hero on his path. And in this one, you really wonder whether you could commit as fully as this character has to, oh, yeah. to the path that he's going down. But, um, 
but yeah, so I don't know. What, what, I guess what was your what was your impression of it? Uh, and... <laughs> okay, I want to echo that sentiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's I've never really watched a movie where the good guy got to a point where I was like, maybe he really is just an idiot. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's he's this price is too steep because usually. Like you're, and if you're used to like Western movies, this was like a Dirty Harry kind of equivalent thing in a lot of ways. But like you would save the girl, you would beat the bad guy, and then you would be somehow justified in the end. And none of that happens. Yeah, at like all. It, and normally, even in like another Wuxia movie, even if if it was like taking like the Dirty Harry approach or something, where he just kind of goes on his own thing, and in the end if they decide to kill him as a character, it would still feel glorious and like he's attained some, like even if he dies at the end, you would expect it to, to have some, some greater meaning or purpose. I'm sorry. But you know, even when he's alive and succeeding, because he does eventually like, they, they put him through hell. He wants to, in the, the beginning of the third act, he's like coated in urine, beaten, poison, starved and in jail. And then his rival comes to kill him. And then he finally manages to get the heck out of there. Not to spoil it too much, but I mean, no, of course... You he know does. what? Okay, we're going to spoil it. This is going to be full of spoilers because I want to talk about some details. Okay, okay. So we'll, so, we'll spoil it then. So they kill but his like, wife, too. They kill his wife. They, they, they kill his wife. Yeah. They, they kill everyone. But, yeah. like, okay, so getting to that point where he's, like, at a really dark point, even then when he gets out and starts murdering the people that have been torturing him, you as an audience, or me, I guess, I was like, okay, so he's killing people, but, like... Just run, dude. Like, yeah, what are you even yeah. accomplishing anymore? This isn't even revenge. You're, you're still doing this as though you're a noble constable. And he is. Like, he even goes and prays to the statue of the, the god of justice or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't follow you anymore, man. You're nuts. Well, they had to get like, it back. Get out of there. They, 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 they had to get it back to the temple of chivalry. That was sort of the... Yep. Yeah, That's uh, a very important part of the movie is yeah. that temple. Um, but, yeah, uh, but... I guess, I guess for me, number one, just as a, as a movie, I really liked that aspect of it. I really like sort of, you know, oh, I, yeah, what, what price? Like, you really do ask that question. And, 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 and you sort of ask the question, well, am I not as moral as I thought? Or is he more stupid than I thought? Like, what, what you know, like, what is... Yeah, you, it, you, start, you start gauging him versus, like, is he actually being rational, even in his pursuit of chivalry? Or is he nuts? Yeah. Did he lose everything else? And all he has is this, and he's just clinging onto it by the barest, like, by the, the by his knuckle bones. And, like, that's a question you ask, and the movie doesn't demand that you ask that question. You find yourself asking that question. Yeah. Because just, like like you said, it, it's, it's, and it starts off at, at a, in a way where you're like, okay, they're going to clean up the town. And no, everyone gets compromised. Everything goes wrong. All the people you love die. And then it just keeps getting worse for this dude. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god. Yeah. And he What am I doing with my life? Um, but he's still like, nope, I'm dedicated. And the movie makes certain that he, they, they gives you those scenes where it's like, the voices of reason will, will come to him. His wife comes to him. Cut this out. You know, we've yeah. got to... You don't have to be a constable. We can do something else. And he's like, no, I will be a righteous constable. And then later on, his friend comes to him. And he's like, okay, our friend died. And they just swept that under the rug. And they're bribing me. And they're trying to bribe you. And they're going to kill you and everyone you love. You need to give this up. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep being a good guy. And then his friend's like, Whoa, okay. And then he's in the dungeon. And his wife comes to beg for his life. And he's like, okay, don't beg. There's, there's a there's a big, big, big judge coming. Go and talk to him. 
And she's like, oh, okay. And then he well, gets well, worried. No, I should died. say, in that scene, she actually is the one who proposes that idea because he tells her. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah he tells her to um, uh, to marry somebody else because he's going to be there for 30 years. And she says, hey, mm-hmm. no, there's this judge who's righteous. I'm going to appeal to him. And that's why she gets murdered because she's going to appeal. True. And they're like, hey, she's going to sue us. She's going to go to the magistrate. And, and they. And they and they they hang her in broad daylight, and uh, yeah. and then his friend tells him that, and he gets a chance to get out. His rival comes to kill him when he's soaked in the pee. I can't get over that part. That was so awful. Well, the, and, and the guy playing the bad guy is Lolier. He's one of the. There's like eight bad guys in this movie, but Lolier is the uh, is the bandit guy, the bandit bad guy with the with the eye patch because he gets a that killed his friend. Yeah, murdered the heck out of him, and uh, and like yeah, Lolier. I love I, I love the martial arts in this movie. I do want to take a moment to kind of just have a breather with the martial arts themselves because, like, you, you told me about them before, and you're like, you'll you'll thrill at them, but you won't. It won't just be because of the spectacle. Yeah, and you were right. There's a certain brutality to it, even though it like, never quite goes to wire foo. It's all very believable. Yeah, and it's still fantastic. Like these guys fight like you know like wizards, but like there's like this harshness to it and this this brutality that makes it really. Just it's gut wrenching. Some of these combats, yeah, and, and and a lot of kicking. I like the kicking that they brought to the table in this one. Uh, Sun Chien is uh, in the movie, and he's you know known for his kicks, and so they they kind of they folded that into a lot of the fight choreography. Um, and and yeah, the scene with Lolier when he's got he's got the Guan Dao and he's just chopping guys down and taking off heads, and you know it's definitely oh, yeah. Wuxia because it's like one guy taking out ten guys. But uh, uh, there's a lot of groups of bad guys attacking our heroes, which, yeah. by the way, I made rules for in Tianxiang because of those exact kind of scenes. Yeah, um, yeah, you have actually. This, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, there's a similar scene at, near the end of Ninja Scroll where the infinite levels of ninja attack Jubei. Just oh, ninja yeah, stuff yeah. out of everywhere. He's like, ting, ting, ting. same thing. Exact same kind of trope happening there. So. And that's very difficult to pull off in a game. Um, yeah. <laughs> one one of the things of this movie, in terms of gaming, what I what I thought about was uh, just uh, I, I think it's about constables, and constables are a really important aspect of of life in this kind of setting. So it's just a good sort of introduction to how the inner workings of a constable organization might operate, so that you just sort of have something to hang your hat on and know. Okay, you know this is you know this is sort of how the procedures are, and this is what they do on a daily basis. Uh, so that you you know you can give it can it can allow you to sort of give a little bit more uh, more uh, fleshing out of 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 a typical encounter with a constable, for example. But also, if you wanted to run a constable campaign, this would be a really good movie to watch. Um, yeah, it'd be almost like rec- like again recommending Dirty Harry if you're doing a cop or detective game. Yeah. It's like this it kind of gives you some insight there. Um, um, and yeah, I, I noticed that too. Like the movie doesn't put it in your face, but it does just kind of just genuinely show you like, okay, here's how they collect their pay. Here yeah. is how they communicate with each other. Like yeah. here's how they solve problems and here's how the organization works. It's all really natural, really comprehensible. And like, it's not like a thing they have to explain to you. They just sort of do. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I, w- I would, uh, I would definitely say it's, um, it's a movie that you can, uh, you can you can get some gaming material out of it. if it's if if you're heading in that direction if you're heading in sort of the law enforcement uh, city adventure type direction with a Wuxia game, um, and and I think uh, I think constables generally are there you know there there there's a lot of constable movies out there and so uh, you know 
it's it's the sort of thing that it's worth getting familiar with. Um, yes, this is true. Um, I for me, one of the more the more uh, dark things that came into it that actually kind of got my gears turning because I, I was watching it with the eye towards what am I going to talk about with this mm. one was there's an extended torture scene near the end of the second act. Yeah. And like, I've never successfully put or really wanted to put torture into a game, but like there, there's a question that's begged every time I, my players get like apprehended by the bad guys where I'm like, I don't just want to kill them. And I don't want to sit there describing how they're tortured. How do you gamify that? Do you, have you ever gamified like them being incarcerated and tortured or otherwise like, I, something like that happening? I don't think I have, um, I've had players that have, I mean, I think everybody's had the players who torture they torture the goblin for info. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, they just, you know, um, I've had some pretty brutal players in that respect, but <laughs> I, I have, I, I, I haven't generally done it. I think just because it feels odd to do yeah. to your players. Um, may, maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know. I, 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 I don't, I can't say I have a whole lot of experience with it, but if I were to do it, if I were, if I were to commit to that idea, uh, I would use whatever the game that I'm playing's equivalent of an endurance role is, so that I have some way of measuring their response to the, uh, you know, so so I, you know, everybody can say, oh, I, you know, they cut off my hand, I don't say anything, but uh, you know, there needs to yeah, be some kind of that's the response you get. Yeah. Um, I would probably roll on something like a mutilation chart. I know a lot of games have those, and just be like, hey, this is how they disfigure you. Mm-hmm. Do you say anything? No. Roll again. Okay. <laughs> you know, just make it worse each time. If I was, if I had to do torture, I, I would do it something like that. So it was a player cost. I have maimed players. I do maim players frequently. Oh yeah, there's a um, maiming section in your game, which yeah. has this. The guy, his eyes were just cut in half with the sword. Yeah. He's like, oh god. I. Uh, that caught my attention. <laughs> yeah, you have to maim. You have to be willing to maim players in a campaign because I mean, you need, you need, you need to have. So here's what I do when, but, but, but if I'm, and again, this is a little bit off topic, but if I'm gonna have somebody lose an arm, I will usually have the NPC declare that they're going to take your arm first. And there's two reasons for it. No, 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 not always. I'm not always going to do that, but usually I will. One of the reasons is I want the player to know that I'm not like fudging any of this, like that, 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 that that's what I was intending to do from the outset. Um, you know, and that's just an easy way to convey that I'm, the character is trying to maim you. Um, well, and it, in a metagame level, it tells the player the stakes. It's, yeah. You're not going to lose hit points. You're going to lose your freaking arm. So take this seriously. Yep, yep, yeah. So I, I think it's I think it's important to sort of uh, uh, if, you know if if you are going to maim somebody to be fair about it. So any any maiming role has to be out in the open, in my opinion, just because yeah. it, it's too it's too easy for for people to suspect that it's not a genuine result or something. So. Uh, and, and, and again, losing an arm is a big deal for, uh, I would say losing an arm is af- actually a bigger deal than dying. I had a player character lose his leg a few sessions ago and that was, that's been a pretty, you know, that's been, uh, it had a big impact on the character. So, um, but, but yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's, um, uh, I, I, I think the, the movie has, a, has the torture scenes, um, I guess I guess how I would bring that into a game. I wouldn't bring the torture itself, but what it did illuminate for me is, hey, you could have a campaign that somewhat occurs inside of a prison if a player gets captured. Like there was a there was an ecosystem in that prison. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just like oh yeah. Well, well, I'm sorry. We're we're gonna go back to the Wuxia Dungeon again, which I know you're right. There was an ecosystem there. There were 
the architecture itself was important, like the way the rooms were set up, allowed him to do sneak attacks on some people. You know, all important stuff. And it was a dungeon hiding right in your Wusha movie. No, and I think, and, and not just a dungeon, but it also had like a population like a town would have. Like you had like, you had like all of the, you knew who everybody was in that prison, even if they didn't have a name. And, and so sort of, you know, if you have a player that gets captured, maybe you, maybe skip the torture. But one thing you might do <laughs> is you might have him deal with sort of the, the, the groupings of people that are now in this prison that he's in. And some of them are not his friends. And, and and they pose a threat to him. You know, that's that's actually a pretty interesting situation to have to survive. Um, that is interesting. I think that's a good way of uh, doing something fascinating with you get thrown in the, uh, well, you get thrown on the brig, basically. Um, that's cool. I like that. I may have to, I may have to steal that, Brendan. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, one thing that I like to do is if the players get captured, I like to sort of know where it's going to go. Um, so I'm always sort of thinking about that. Um, but uh, I guess I guess the one other item we wanted to cover in, in, in this segment today was the Painted Skin story, which you read. So I was, oh, yeah, I just, to just read it. it. That, was, um, that was fresh. So that's a Pusong Ling story from the Strange Tales books. It's been made into multiple movies. There's the, the Painted Skin from the early 90s, which is by King Hu, and, and, and I recommend it. There's the more recent ones, which I love, the... the um, uh, the ones that came out, I think, in, was it 2008 and 2011? I might have the dates wrong, but they're 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 really uh, they they have a really great look to them. And then there was a there was one that came out in the 60s that is uh, difficult. I've never found it with English subs, but it's still worth checking out because the visual depiction of the monster is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, what did you think? What did you think of the story? Um. I, I, I liked it in a lot of ways, and it was one of those things where, I remember you telling me this about the, the Strange Tales, that I could immediately take that and turn it into something for a game, because what it basically is, is just a, it's a witch, it's a monster who has the ability to, like, change her appearance and has a couple of little magic tricks, and, like, if you translated it one-to-one to D&D, you could, or, or equivalent system, you could just put that monster in there, yeah. and the player is either one of the poor people in the house, if it's a horror game, or it's the priest, in the case of a more heroic game. Uh, so, yeah, I liked that. Um, and one of the other things I liked about it was it didn't care to explain everything in it, so it has an enduring sense of mystery. Like, at the very end, where uh, the wife has to go to the really dirty, weird guy. Yep, yeah. Okay, he spit a pill in your mouth, and it's the it's your husband's heart. Bye. What? I, okay, that was great. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was might a, be my favorite part of the whole thing. That was a really weird scene. She goes up to this crazy guy who's like he looks like a beggar or something, and he basically embarrasses her and then says, "Okay, now you got to drink my spit." And she drinks the spit and she goes home humiliated. And then it turns out, like you said, to be her husband's heart, and it it, it restores his body because <laughs> the monster takes out his heart. Um, mm. That's where the whole in oh. the in the new painted skin movies they that's where the eating the heart thing comes from. But uh, but it's I just I, I put these monsters in my own game because I thought they were I think they're so amazing that this I like I love I love shapeshifters and I love the idea of somebody who can literally paint a skin on themselves to be whatever they want and and in I, I it's a little unclear because it's through translation but in 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 some versions of it that I have the monster is described as a he and the exterior is a she it's sort of like a, a veneer. Uh, in some, it's both. So I, it's it's a, it's a uh, it's it's the the the, the monsters a, a she and the the exteriors a she. So I don't know, uh, I don't know what it is in the original text, but I like the idea that you could have 
this monster that's uh you know it can be it can it can be virtually anything underneath this skin um it's a it's a it's a really interesting monster to throw at a party uh, and it's also an interesting monster if you have an existing npc that the players know uh to replace that person um you know uh, do like a, do like a changeling slash doppelganger thing yeah it's, it's yeah a, and um that, that's the thing about like doppelganger as a bad guy and in D this is a thing too where that's in every monster manual this doppelganger yeah. the shape-shifting i can be anyone bad guy that you have to understand about those things they're only interesting if you don't know they're a doppelganger at first yeah yeah that's like you get most of the mileage out of them not being what they actually are which isn't really intuitive, and I don't think any monster manuals ever actually came out and just said, okay, here's how you do a doppelganger. Because if you round a corner and there is a chest and a doppelganger there, okay, you're about to have an uninteresting fight. Well, but like, if you go to the inn and the innkeeper is acting strangely and tries to kill you at night, okay, now you've got something interesting. Yeah, I would agree. And I, and I think being will, thinking about planting that seed early is always good. Like, if you... If you, you like like the inn is fine. I think I think an attack in the inn works totally well. Um, but you can also do it with like a longer term character that the party's going to deal with, and maybe they don't know that they don't discover the situation until you know well into the adventure um, or well into the campaign. That could be interesting too. If there's like a an official that they've been dealing with, and the whole time he's been like a painted skin creature, um, that can be sort of an you know you know it, but they don't know it. Because cause one of the things I like to do is I like to make sure that I'm dropping clues about stuff like this so mm-hmm. that when the players, when the reveal happens, the players, you know, and I always want at least one of my players to say, guys, he did like drop a few clues. Now, you know, like I like I think that's... You want, you want one of the players as your advocate because you want the whole well, table going, oh, that came out of nowhere. Yeah, if, if somebody groans, I want there to be another person at the table who will be like, no, he said it here and he did that and he did... And so that... So I, I think it's always good to sort of lay the the um, and again when you, whenever you whenever you do present clues early on that does create the possibility that it'll be discovered earlier than you wanted but that's okay you know that that yeah. uh, that, that that's fair because you know if they, if they they crack the mystery you know right away on a good guess okay um, but. Think, um... Going going back to to that where like something be revealed that that particular reveal could happen a little earlier than you wanted. I think it was Paul Segum of uh, My Life with Master fame who said, it's boring if the same person who thinks of the puzzle thinks of the solution. So, like, it's fine to have, like, maybe an ideal scene that would be really cool to have the doppelganger pop out and do the reveal, but it's also cool if it happens otherwise. Like, it's just a different cool than you were anticipating. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, so, so yeah, if you have that end game in mind... Yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a danger, I think. I think having a, um, having a specific event that needs to occur for the adventure to culminate around can be really dangerous it's much better to just say i have this painted skin creature and this is what it wants and mm-hmm. and these are some things i think could happen but i don't know how, you know what i mean that that's usually a yeah, better that's, that's the best way to do it because yeah. then you even if none of those things happen you know what it wants and what it is and so whatever is happening you can contextualize how it reacts yeah that's perfect because that turns the painted skin creature into a being that's kind of like the players and that it is a, a limited-by-the-rules being that wants stuff and is trying to get it. And so that that puts it on that kind of level playing field where there's no need, there's no plot need to someday have it accomplish something. So you as a GM are like, okay, how does it negotiate or trick 
or connive for what it wants. That's yeah. a healthier place for it to be. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, I think I think that applies to any kind of mystery because you can you know the the players can always come up with a uh, a method that you didn't think of. And so if you're always thinking, no, the solution to this puzzle is X, um, you know, you need to be open to other possibilities sometimes. Uh, it, my, my rule of thumb is if it, if it sounds like it would work and you have no reason to object to it, that probably would work. Um, you know, that's, that's generally how I tend to try to run things. Um, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. I, I think, I think in this case, that's, that's sort of a, uh, a good, a good approach. Um, but the, but yeah, I don't know. I love these creatures. I mean, I, I like you said, they're doppelgangers, basically. Um, mm-hmm. But the, they're super cool doppelgangers. They they can they can they can like they they can paint. A, they, the D and D doppelganger is a little too immediate. These things are closer to like remember John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, they're closer to that. Where like something, some event happens that makes them, you know, have the painted skin power. They can now they can do something. And it's not like it's just a doppelganger, because on top of being able to look like someone else, it's like this really powerful witch monster. Yeah. So there's this whole other interesting monster that's also fooling you. That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. It's a little a, more texture to them. It's a really cool, and I just love that they can like they can they're painting the actual thing. That that's like that there's skill involved in the rendering of the painted skin. Um, God, it almost makes me want to make that something that players can learn. You know? well, no, I have. So I, I, I have player care. I have rules for like, uh, you know, or not rules, but I allow people to try to make like a disguise using that sort of thing. And and uh, and so, you know, uh, I, I think that I think that's fair game. I think uh, it wouldn't be as effective, I think, as one of these monsters. Like these monsters, I imagine, have very perfect. Like because this is a thing, even though it's a painted skin, like nobody is picking up on this thing. It is a really mm. convincing. Uh, yeah, there's no one getting valley. But but I, I but I, I you know in in Wuxia, masks are a very common trope. You'll have character like I, I don't think latex has really been invented yet. But but they have those kinds of masks. You'll have the sort of Scooby Doo reveal where a character's face is peeled off to be somebody else, and and it's one of the tropes I love about the genre because they don't they don't even try to explain it in a like like in a in a. You know, in, a, in an American movie, you would have to, like, really explain that kind of thing. Yeah, you got to give the audience the science. But in, yeah. in Wuxia, it's just tropes. So you just yeah. kind of like, oh, okay, that happened. Yeah. That thing that can happen. Yeah, he's you just know, so it's... good at making masks. He makes them, you know, that's that's all you need. And There's a lot of stuff like that in Wuxia where, like, if you're not, if you don't know that trope as an American viewer, sometimes you're like, how did he do that? Are we not going to address that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nope. they, it's, not it's, not, it's not it's I, I don't think that that's a big concern um, there's a I'll, I'll try to find the video there's a video um, about scale in Shan Shan novels which get like really enormous like like they get somebody an, an American reader tried to break down the scale and sort of analyze it and it made no sense when he did and hmm. and the uh, and the the guy who translates it went to the writer to ask him hey you know what do you think about this and I was like oh, we don't you know I don't care like it's like why are you even worried about that? So I think I think it's just a um, something that we we may, like sometimes we get maybe too obsessive about those kinds of things. Um, oh yeah, and so sometimes it is okay to make the explanation. Who cares? Yeah, it, yeah. You know, it, it, you don't care. It, it's not important to know why you can make that mask. It's just a thing. Deal with it. Let's go. And uh, yeah, no. But but yeah. So or like yeah. <laughs> 
but yeah, I, I, I think I, I don't know. I, what we'll have to do is we'll have to watch the painted skin movies now at some point because those. Yeah, that's I think, probably going to be next week's viewing if I can get a hold of them. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk with you after this, and we'll we'll see if it's a possibility because it's. It, I, I again, the King Who one is excellent, but I really like the painted skin resurrection movie, the the most recent one. Um, I just think it has a, a a really compelling look, and it has. And it borrows a lot from different genres, so it's a movie that I don't think you even have to be a wuxia fan to really like. It's, it really goes well beyond the wuxia genre. It's more of a, uh, it's 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 more of a supernatural sort of fantasy type movie than anything else. But um, well, what I have to do is uh, contrast that with John Carpenter's The Thing. Did you like the Eastern and Western version of the oh, same thing? Oh, that would be a bad idea. Yeah, that would be, be a bad something? idea. I that could might, definitely to stand happen. to watch the thing again if I had an excuse to uh, to rewatch Very watchable. that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, but we've been going on for a while now. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna close here. But I did. We did. We did have one other. Uh, well, you know, we'll hold that off for next week. We were gonna share some other things, but I think we'll hold that off for next week because we've got oh yeah I think a lot of material. A satisfying episode. I'm yeah. pretty happy with how this one out. So. So so all right. So we're gonna go and we'll be back. Uh, and also on Friday. So we have. Wusha workshop and then we have Wusha weekend where uh, we do our, our reviews of movies on the weekend and so I think next week we're doing Hero actually and this past Friday it's not Wusha but we cover Kung Fu movies too and stuff like that we did the tournament with Angela Mao which is a really cool movie that you should watch so I will, uh, I will leave it at that and uh, I'll see everybody tomorrow when I get on with Adam to talk about Return of Condor Heroes Oh!